The purpose of Retire with Style is to help you discover the retirement income plan that is right for you. The first step is to discover your retirement income personality. Start by going to resaprofile.com style and sign up to take the industry's first financial personality tool for retirement planning. What are fixed income annuities made of? A dash of income, a sprinkle of principal protection, a dollop of upside potential, and a contract. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with Wade Fowle. And we're talking today about variable annuities part two. Uh, We think this is actually a very good episode from a practical standpoint. We laid a lot of definitional items in the previous episode just to begin to level set what's going on in the world of variable annuities. But what we want to do here is how can we help make you an informed consumer? What are the questions you want to be thinking about with regards to all those definitions that we laid out? What do you think, Wade? Do we go for that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I also realized right after we finished the previous episode, when we were given the cliffhanger for today, uh, we still need to talk about variable annuity fees, so we w- that's part of the episode too. But uh, all right, <laughs> that's, hey, that's right. okay. We wanna... <laughs> Not gonna leave that aside. That's definitely something we'll dig into. All right, in and a question that well. I then then to do that, one of the things I mentioned in the last episode that you gave me a bit of the Heisman on, you said we don't got time for that. Is uh, <laughs> managing that's risk? Right. How, how does the insurance manage this risk for the income guarantee? Hmm. Yes, and and so the scenario here is I'm investing in these sub-accounts. I'm motivated to take as risky of positions as I can when I have a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit because I know that if I I get hit by risk and I deplete the account, the insurance company is on the hook to continue those payments. So that is a significant risk the insurance company is taking. And so to, we're just framing, well, how do they go about managing that? Exactly. Risk? And, and remember to our listening audience, the sub-accounts are ultimately mutual funds, right? That you yes, get you, you, you get like a cafeteria option of things to pick and, you know, off you go. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so you're motivated to invest as aggressively as you can because the, the living benefit, it's like a put option on the stock market, which just means even if the stock market goes down or if the stock market goes down, you get paid for it. You get <laughs> you continue to receive these distributions no matter what happens with the markets. It's not that you want the stock market to go down, but if it does go down, it's not going to disrupt your ability to meet the, the spending that you had earmarked as coming from this contract over a lifetime basis. Okay. So there's multiple ways that an insurance company can manage risks for the income guarantee. The first is kind of a, a simple one to, to get the juices flowing. It's just they have a strong <laughs> company culture. <laughs> they, so they, they put a lot of effort into risk management, having good actuaries, managing their financial performance and so forth. So Thank you. you Riveting. Say, insightful. Insightful. <laughs> Make Very sure good. that they're going concern. Check. <laughs> Make sure they're going <laughs> concerned. Yes. <laughs> Second, uh, what, what what do they do though? What what do these going concerns do 
to sort of protect themselves a little bit. Well, another thing they can do is just play around with the parameters. And we, we dug into that a lot last week, that at the end of the day, it's how much guaranteed income does the contract provide? Well, they can start giving you the temperature in Celsius instead of Fahrenheit, as we talked about last week. They, they okay, let's give you a really high roll-up rate and have you focus on that. But then we'll lower the withdrawal rate connected to it so that you don't get as much guaranteed income. So they just play around with the parameters to reduce the, and I guess this is obvious too, how do you manage the risk of an income guarantee? You guarantee less income. That's ultimately what what this point is. But uh, it's something, it's a lever they have to work with. All right. Uh, what about the types of managers within the sub-accounts? Now, granted, we just did a whole thing on passive versus active, but... Let's, I want to, I'm curious what you come up with, you know, with, with right, right. for this one. <laughs> so there's a universe of sub-accounts. Uh, it's not just any, it's not like all 9,000 mutual funds or anything. It's They're going to decide which financial service companies to work with as sub-account providers and then choose funds from those companies. And they want high-quality funds. Now, right, we get into this active management type issue, but but they're they're doing their best. They don't want duds, or they don't want really terrible managers as sub-accounts because they want those accounts to perform well because the better the accounts perform, the less likely they're going to be on the hook to yeah, make they're these payments. Not on the hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they do put a lot of effort into choosing the sub-account managers or choosing the companies that they work with. And to the extent they can choose good managers who don't unnecessarily deplete, uh, just perform poorly, then that's a benefit to the company, the insurance company. Because if your money grows, they're happy because then they don't have to be on the hook to provide payments to you. So they want to choose good managers to help you have options that would let your money grow. And even then, don't they limit the what you can do within the sub-accounts? Just to make sure, you kind of said it uh-huh. earlier, but... Even, even more so, like cash and the, and the like that you have set aside. You want to just talk about that a little bit, right? Right. And so, yeah, I mentioned the point that <clears throat> technically, because you have this put option on the stock market, that you do, you're okay even if the stock market goes down. You're incentivized to invest as aggressively as you can. Well, the more risk you take on, the uh, the more expensive it is to fund a guarantee on that. So they may limit how much risk you're allowed to take. That could be as simple as putting a cap on the amount of, like they, all their sub-accounts they could classify as risky in the risky category or the, I don't not less risky category. And, and so the stocks and other things would be in the risky category. Bonds are more in the less risky category. But they could simply say, you're not allowed to have more than 70% of your assets in the funds we deem as being risky. You, you, know, what, you, you know what I find fascinating with this? Uh, the whole, if you take a step back and the whole, why not a hundred percent in stocks, the, the sort of the total return people that say, just put it all in a hundred percent in stocks and and let it go. Right. And then there's folks saying, no, you may not want to do that, et cetera, et cetera, for the reasons. Right. So, but think about this, the insurance companies who are literally now on the hook to provide distributions for folks, they themselves realize the silliness of a hundred percent in stocks, or you know, just just have at it from a risk standpoint. This is almost like the manifestation of why you don't do a hundred percent in stocks. I mean, they do the math better than you, better than anyone else in the world, and they've figured out, you know, magically. Hey, you know what? We need to 
control how much risk people are taking with the underlying investments is we're, if we're going to guarantee, you know, distribution from it, mm-hmm. right? You, you follow yeah, what I'm getting yeah. at? <laughs> yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, they realize that it's not less risky for them if you're in 100% stocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're not telling you buy leverage ETFs. <laughs> no, that, yeah, that that's the crux of the matter. And and some companies may market providing more investment freedom, but that that's the idea. You you generally would have some sort of cap on your risk allocation, whether it's 60%, whether it's 70%. That's one direction they can go. Another direction they can go is just the sub-accounts are focused more on volatility-controlled type fund offerings so that they're trying to keep the volatility of the... Yeah, but that's the same thing. They're just cutting off tails. I mean, it's... Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, another direction they can go too is require cash positions. So you've got all these sub-account choices, (laughs) but you may be required to keep at least 10% of it in cash is an example of how that that could work. Yeah, it's, it's an effort to... You're again. You're motivated to invest more aggressively. They're motivated to not have you invest more aggressively. Although some, they want you to invest somewhat. I mean, there is like a balanced portfolio. They do expect to grow. It's just the cost of providing a guarantee increases the more aggressively someone is investing the funds. I mean, this is this is the whole. There is no safe withdrawal rate from a volatile investment un, un, unless you sort of make adjustments. And, and there's one more issue there, too, that the insurance company is exposed to behavioral risk. So if you're a bad investor and you go 100% stocks and then the market crashes and then you panic and sell your stocks, just like we know in a brokerage account, you may completely destroy your retirement. Well, in the context of a variable annuity, <laughs> you may completely uh, destroy the contract value. And therefore, your behavioral mistakes, they have to like manage your behavioral mistakes or they have to, if you make bad decisions with your investment subaccounts, they're on the hook for providing that guaranteed payment. And so part of that is also they just want to do the best they can to avoid having you go from 100% stocks to all cash uh, because that's what humans tend to do sometimes. But that's an element they're trying like, to manage as well. It's almost like they're, you know, their investors are the id, and these guys are the super ego, and maybe you come up with the middle ground, you know, <laughs> from a performance standpoint. So that's how they manage. And, Go on. Well, there's one more. They they can raise the the fees oh, that yeah, they charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That, that's fees. a good segue. <laughs> that's a good segue into talking about variable annuity fees. Yeah, and and how do these fees work? I mean, and again, this goes back to. I, I've said it since the beginning. There, there's bad everything. You know, there are bad mutual funds. There's bad whatever you want. There are bad variable annuities, if you will. But that doesn't, you know, I don't want it to be a, a throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of kind of thing. At the end of the day, you're paying for this insurance, and so I, I remember once, just as an aside, and again, I, I think it happens to the uninitiated. You look at your statements. And you look at some sort of expense ratio and you compare it to a mutual fund expense ratio and the expense ratios of a, of a variable annuity, not knowing any better, you think, why would I pay three times as much for, for something like this? And, mm-hmm. and to an advisor that really – and I can't stress enough. You'd be surprised how many advisors, after they take their basic CFP certification, no longer revisit this at all. And seven years later, they, they have no idea 
other than what and i don't think they're learning about variable annuities in the cfp program anyway that's oh, why, I just one said, of the motivations but, that <laughs> but that's when you're like enthusiastic about this stuff you know what i mean that's oh, when uh-huh, you're enthusiastic uh-huh. about oh let me learn everything that you know you want to be like cfp of the year or, or ricp person of the year you know what i mean not to take away from from your curriculum but you know what i'm getting at after this sort of initial enthusiasm or certifications wane you kind of go into your little cove of things and so mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I I think they miss this a lot. But what 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 is the sort of the the building blocks of, of variable annuity fees? Yeah. So there's four potential types of fees. The first is the sub accounts have fund expenses, and that's no different than any sort of mutual fund. But that's part of the analysis. Usually, those fund expenses would be pretty similar, whether it's the equivalent fund in a brokerage account or the equivalent fund from the same fund family uh, that's created as a variable annuity subaccount option. There could be the additional 12B1 expense charge that's more for the marketing, but that's an issue inside and outside variable annuities. But yeah, it's you've got the underlying fund expenses, number one. Number two, variable annuities will have a mortality and expense charge, and that is going to be a percentage of the contract value. Just, of course, the fund expenses are a percentage of the contract value. The mortality expense charge is also a percentage of the contract value. That covers the cost of business for the insurance company. If it's a commission-paying annuity, that's meant to help recoup and cover the costs of paying the advisor's commission. That's also helping to support some of the basic guarantees, such as any sort of basic death benefit and so forth, and also supporting the the underlying annuitization tables that are part of any annuity contract. So you got the mortality and expense charges. The third option is the surrender charges, which is annuities are meant to be long-term contracts, but if you want to get your money out in the early years in in excess of the amount they allow you to take free of any surrender charge, you would face a surrender charge schedule. It could be something like, 10% 10% in year one, 9% in year two, 8% in year three, 1% in year 10, and then it goes away. Some, that would be one example of a surrender charge schedule. And now, that's to recoup the, the commission was paid to the advisor. And then if you kept it just for a couple of years, that's not enough time for the mortality expense charge to recoup that. So that's this, what the surrender charges are for. This is for me, this is interesting. And, and I say this and let's have some context. Wade and I are managing principles of McLean Asset Management. McLean Asset Management has largely been an assets under management firm. You know, we, we do annuities and things like that, but for the most part, we've been assets under management. We were fee only a, a few, even a few years ago. And so I, I want to talk about this because this is where, because you had mentioned commission, right? So, you know, in our business and our normal business, you know, there's a, let's just say for argument's sake, I, I think it, it doesn't average it's slower than that, but for the for the sake of, of uh, this discussion, if you're managing assets and you're charging one percent a year, you know, and you're and the relationships are long term, they're gonna ex- they're gonna exceed effectively seven years, eight years, nine years, ten years, etc. Right? And so it's very easy to say, aha, this surrender charge, I'm paying a commission for seven years. Effectively, you're almost front loading the you know the the, the advice or you know over the course of a of a seven year period over the seven plus year period. So if you really compare apples, uh, you know, if you're doing a a true comparison, you want to know what the lifetime value 
of the AUM bill was versus the lifetime value of, of the surrender charge. Now, then there's more wrinkles in the sense of, well, but I'm providing ongoing financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's, a, that's a fair point. But you want to be able to compare these in, you know, in, in terms of what you're getting for that fee, if you will. Wade, do you want to maybe clear that up a little bit as well? I don't I think it was clumsy when I was going through that. No. Uh, yeah. And if you're a long-term holder, you never pay any surrender charge. That's only if you want to get out yeah. of the contract early. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I even <laughs> forgot to mention that part. Yeah. But you know what <laughs> I'm trying to do here? Right. I'm trying to kind of frame the, the whole fee thing in a correct right. way. Right. And the advisor who sold the contract is paid the commission that the insurance company would gradually recoup through the mortality and expense charge but they need you to be a long-term holder of the contract for them to not lose money. So the surrender charge is their way to make up for that if you decide to abandon the contract, which hopefully you're not going to generally do. That's You're going into these because they are meant to be long-term contracts, but that that's the issue there. And then the fourth potential charge is just for any optional benefits. If you have the guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit, if you have an optional death benefit rider, those are not going to create any profits for the insurance company. The, the profit part is coming through the mortality and expense charges. The optional living benefit charges are simply used by the insurance company to buy the financial derivatives to help support the guarantee that they're on the hook to <laughs> provide you. So that's the way, that's an additional, and that may be, there's different ways those work. That's what I mentioned before. These other charges are on the contract value. With living benefits, the charge could be on the contract value. Charge could be on the benefit base, which would, if the benefit benefit base is worth more, make that charge more expensive. Or it could be on some other type of hybrid between something in between the benefit base and the contract value. But again, those charges are simply meant to support the guarantees that the contract provides. And then we, you know, we're at. We're, we've had David Lau on the show, DPL. We're friends with the, the kind of fee-only annuities as well. And by what those fee-only annuities are doing is they strip the commissions out of the annuity, which allows the insurance company to reduce the mortality and expense charges because they don't have to pay the commission through that. And it allows the company to potentially reduce or even eliminate surrender charges because they don't have to recoup that any commission since it's a non-commission annuity. But it's not a but in the negative sense. It's just... But be clear, the advisor most likely has this now on their assets, and so they are charging an, an assets under management fee for for this annuity within their you know within their overall cost. So they kind of shift a little bit as opposed to disappear. That's neither good right. nor bad. I'm just it, sort of pointing it yeah. out. Yes, if you're paying the advisor an assets under management charge. And they are managing the contract value of the variable annuity for you. That assets under management charge would apply to the contract value as well. That's completely separate of any involvement of the insurance company. It's not in that scenario. It's not a variable annuity fee, but it is a fee you pay by working with the advisor. Are you a financial professional looking to learn more about the RISA and retirement income best practices? Well, if you are, you should join our Retirement Income Masterclass on Monday, August 28th, and Tuesday, August 29th. You can sign up at resaprofile.com slash advisors. That's resaprofile.com slash advisors. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about the, the 
ongoing fee drag and assets and required assets to meet to meet the goal? Right. So that's like, how do you frame variable annuity fees? And so if you had a traditional kind of commission-based variable annuity, you could have a 3.5% total charge. It could be like a half a percent fund expense, maybe one and a quarter percent mortality and expense charge. Surrender charges aren't applicable here, but so but we're now at 1.75%. Uh, I maybe didn't give these numbers high enough, but say another 1.5% as the writer charge. Now that's getting us up to three and a quarter percent. So you're all in potentially paying three and a quarter percent as an annual fee. And is that expensive? Well, one way to frame that, it's not so much the fee drag as how much assets do you need to feel comfortable with retirement? And if you can earmark less assets through the variable annuity because you're worried about outliving your money and therefore you'd be using a really low quote unquote safe withdrawal rate with an investment portfolio, you might be able to meet your goal with less assets using the variable annuity. And then at that point, who cares what the fee drag is? These are assets earmarked for my spending, and it's allowing me to meet that spending with less assets. And so that so, could make me feel more comfortable. Is it easy to say, said another way, you have a million-dollar portfolio and you want to retire, and you're taking you're going to take a sustainable withdrawal rate, and that and with that, you're taking 38000 a year or, or whatever, right? Or... You don't have a million dollar portfolio and you get the same $38,000 a year through a variable annuity with less overall in assets. And so at at the end of the day, to your point, what do you care? Because you're making $38,000 with less of an asset pool. It's all embedded in the fee. But so what? You're doing it with less money and Mm -hmm. you're getting that insurance component to it. Is that a fair way of... uh, Right. Kind of turning it around. And to that point, too, it's you may have a higher fee percentage, but if you can apply that to a smaller asset base to fund your retirement, you're not necessarily paying more overall fees at the end of the day. Although that might be a stretch, it might still be more overall fees. But you are getting these uh, these protections that you have guaranteed lifetime income assured no matter how long you live and no matter what happens with the financial markets during your retirement. Subject to the claims paying guarantees of the insurance provider, which is a, a big disclaimer we should be clear about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, but I, I, I get that. But still, you know, I mean, it's just you have to look at it for what the end game is, not necessarily the – you're not comparing – it almost goes back to the first part that we ever said, the first thing out of our mouths is you need to compare apples to apples and, you know, just saying – the fee drag and looking at 3.75 versus a mutual fund at, I don't know, 40 bips. It's just not the same thing. They're doing yeah, different and things. And the other piece of that is, so Moshe Maleski, we, we talked about how when you have these, you should invest more aggressively. Just mathematically, you've got this insurance that is allowing you to invest and to not be worried about what's happening in the markets. Moshe Maleski did have a study looking at big um accounts with variable annuities with and without living benefits and found that people were generally increasing their stock allocations by five to 30 percentage points with the living benefit in place. Even more recently, David Blanchett had a study with the Alliance for Lifetime Income showing how people are less likely to abandon their stock investments when they had protections in place. So there is a sense that people who have these guarantees are willing to invest more aggressively. And in doing that, 
well, if markets do okay, you're not necessarily sacrificing legacy because the, the risk premium from the stock market might more than compensate you for the fees that you're paying. So that at the end of the day, even though you paid higher fees because you invested more aggressively, the net legacy, the legacy you provide net of fees or the, the value of your assets net of fees could be higher because the growth you achieved by feeling more comfortable. It's like with that Moshe Molesky scenario, maybe if I didn't have the guarantee, I'd only feel comfortable with 40% stocks. But if that guarantee lets me feel comfortable with 60% stocks, that's that kind of scenario where that could more than compensate you for the, the higher fees that the guarantee provides. Yeah, and assuming that the company comes through on the guarantee, et cetera, et cetera, you're not paying a higher fee just for the investment subaccounts. You're paying a higher fee for those guarantees that come with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Okay, wait, that's that's a lot there. Uh, let's say here, if you're now looking at these things, you're, you're not looking at a variable annuity or, or someone's pitching you this or you, you're, you're at a chicken dinner because you were like, ah, let's do this as a goof, you know, and, and you showed up and you start listening to folks. What 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 questions can can I ask you know what what questions should you start asking yourself to be an informed consumer? Let's say if you're you know mm-hmm. we talked about the roll up rate last time, right? Uh, I, I would think simply put the the trick there is okay at, at the very least you want to know if it's if the roll up rate is simple or compounded. Is that like a mm-hmm. you know I, I, you know and and I, actually I would say as we're saying these you know in the podcast we wrote down a bunch of these questions. It'd be helpful to just think these through in terms of becoming an informed consumer. So there's a roll-up rate. What are those? Why why did why would we ask that to figure to figure out if it's simple or compounded? Yeah, yeah, and also just so there's we can talk about the deferral stage before you turn on guaranteed income. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the what the guaranteed stage. income will be. Risk management of the company. And also, just to be clear, there's so many levers in these contracts. So when we say that. Approach A is better than approach B. Uh, yes, <laughs> but then if that's offset somewhere else. But but yes, all everything else being the same, when you look at the roll-up rates, of course you want to know the value. Is it 4%, 5%, 6%, 7%? But then is it simple or compounded? And all else being the same, a 7% compounded roll-up rate is better than a 7% simple roll-up rate because the compounded roll-up rate is going to roll up on top of past roll-ups. It's that's what compounding interest is all about. You get growth on growth rather than just growth on the initial value. And to your point, this is where, you know, in isolation, yes, but you also have to consider what that is ultimately with a withdrawal rate. And this goes back to your mm-hmm. your Fahrenheit and Celsius comment before. Yeah, yeah. And with a long enough deferral period, a 6% compounded roll-up rate could easily grow the benefit base more than a 7% simple roll-up rate, for example. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what other things within the roll-up features they, sh- they should be thinking about? The big one would just be how long is the roll-up rate applied? Like You can generally start purchasing living benefits in your mid-40s, but if you're 45 and you're thinking to retire at 65 and you're thinking, oh, I want to get that roll-up rate for the next 20 years, well, read the fine print. The roll-up rate may only be available for 10 years, and then there's no more roll-ups after that. So just make sure you understand how long the roll-up rate is applied. So this is important with regards to your potential date when you're thinking about retiring, you know, or if <laughs> it's for longevity purposes when you're, when you're thinking about doing that. So this could be relevant, actually, when you're when you're in that stage. 
of that whole bridging component to things. Uh, in terms of step-up frequencies, how frequently are step-up opportunities provided? That, that would be something mm-hmm. that would be interesting as well because, you know, when we talk about step-ups, they, they're sort of path independent from roll-ups, if you will. Right, right. And this matters too because the most common step-up frequency would be annual. And then you're looking at, at contract anniversary dates. And we really didn't get into this specific point in detail. But if I bought the contract on April 3rd and I have an annual step-up opportunity, we look at where the market is every year on April 3rd. If the market doubled <laughs> during that year, but then came back down so that on April 3rd is back to where it started, I wouldn't get any step up. So all else being the same, more frequent step ups are better than less frequent step ups. And it could be quarterly, it could be monthly, it could be daily. A daily step up looks every day and it's still probably not intraday. So if the market was up at noon, but was back down by closing time, <laughs> you, you wouldn't get the Could you the imagine high intraday? Could you imagine like an intraday? <laughs> an intraday <laughs> step up opportunity. <laughs> but the more frequent the opportunity, the more likely you are to, to lock in a new high water mark. And, so, and the, the other piece is, uh, and this is helpful to me, step up applies to the contract value. Roll-ups are just roll-ups, you know, they're mm-hmm. just going to increase by whatever. Remember, roll-ups though aren't investment rates of return as well. That's the right. other piece. Nor so you are have, step-ups. Yeah, but, yeah. No, no, I got you. But they come I, from market returns though. Yeah. And to me, I, I just see it step-ups relate to the, the contract value. Now, we said this earlier, but... Uh, I think and this is because of the, the alliteration throws me off. It throws me off. So I can imagine everyone else do step ups stack on top of roll ups Do step mm-hmm. up stacks, you know, and so maybe can define a little bit one more time since we're, this is the, we're trying to put it together for folks, the stacking concept. And then mm-hmm. do they stack on top of roll ups? Okay. So stacking is better than not stacking. Uh, not stacking means the roll-ups are always applied to the initial uh, benefit base, which is usually the initial premium put into the contract. So even if a step-up got you to a new high watermark, the roll-ups would continue to apply to the initial contract value or initial benefit base. And, and so you may you may get a long time where your benefit base is flat because the roll-ups are trying to work their way up to where that step-up got you. Whereas stacking means if you got a new high watermark, the, you step up, the, the underlying contract value achieved a level higher than it ever was and higher than the benefit base was, higher than any of the past roll-ups got it to, then you reset the benefit base to that level. And if you stack roll-ups, now the roll-ups start applying to that new high watermark benefit base rather than continuing to apply to the initial uh, benefit base at the start of the contract. Okay. And vesting. And this question, just because I'm reading the question here, and just want to make sure people understand the question, much less you go into just answering it. How frequently are step-ups rolled and how frequently are step-ups and roll-ups vested into the benefit base? Mm -hmm. The answer is usually annually. It could be different than that, but it's So this gets back to, well, what if I had daily step-up opportunities? So what if my contract achieved a new high watermark one month later? (laughs) Uh, I would then see my benefit base as being higher 
but it wouldn't actually vest to be that higher benefit base until the end of the until the next contract anniversary. And so that just gets into the scenario about if you want to turn on your lifetime income, the benefit base you see may not actually vest until the next contract anniversary date. And so that's what the vesting is all about. It's it's only an issue if the step up and roll up opportunities are have a different frequency than the well, then annual would generally be be the scenario. The, and just because I, I want people to be clear, can you describe benefit base and contract value real quick? Mm-hmm. So the benefit base is the hypothetical value used that can be different from the underlying contract value, the, the value of the underlying subaccounts, but the hypothetical benefit base that's used to calculate what the guaranteed income is. So I apply the withdrawal rate to the benefit base. And if I got a big step up and later the contract value declined, the benefit base could be quite a lot higher than the contract value at any particular date. Well, when I turn on the lifetime income, I don't apply the withdrawal rate to the contract value. I apply the the withdrawal rate to the hypothetical benefit base to see how much I'm allowed to distribute on a lifetime basis. And so someone listening, what... What purpose does a contract value serve at that point? Uh, it's still, if it continues to grow, if the contract value is close to the benefit base, you can still, so roll-ups stop when you turn on lifetime income, but step-ups continue generally. And I always have to say generally because every contract's different. But yeah. generally, step-ups continue after you turn on lifetime income. It does just become more difficult over time to achieve step-ups to a new high watermark. Because now it's not just net of fees, it's also net of the distributions you're taking. Okay. But I think we're, and, yeah, and now we're really shifted into the distribution period. Yeah, so we're, right. we're turning exactly. on the lifetime income. <laughs> okay. And so, so now we're distributing, right? And so income guarantee amount, what, what is, what's a question someone's going to want to ask themselves when they're looking at the income guarantee amount? So someone's presenting mm-hmm. them all these annuity levers and think about how this is not an easy thing, right? Because you, there were all these deferral period considerations, right? Now distribution period considerations, income guaranteed amount, what, what should someone yeah, know? And, and even before mentioning that, it's probably worth reminding everyone again that with a living benefit, we're not annuitizing the contract. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. that the guaranteed income amount is the amount that's defined as if I'm paying for that insurance, I'm allowed to take out this amount of money each year. And if I don't take out more than that, I will maintain my guarantee that should this act of spending this amount every year cause the underlying account to deplete, those payments will continue at the defined level in the contract. And so the the guaranteed income amount is ignoring the step-ups. You could get step-ups to increase this even more, but if you don't get any step-ups, it's that interaction of the roll-up rates for your deferral period and then the withdrawal rate based on the age you start those distributions. So it's like that example where if you had a 10-year deferral and 10% simple roll-ups and a 4.5% withdrawal rate, $100,000 premium would guarantee you at least $9,000 after 10 years of deferral. And it could be more if you got a step-up along the way. Let's take a moment to let the audience know that this show is sponsored by Retirement Researcher. 
You can learn more about Retirement Researcher at retirementresearcher.com and subscribe to our newsletter where you'll receive weekly actionable information for your retirement planning benefit. Retirement Researcher is an online community devoted to helping you create the retirement income plan geared towards your goals. Okay. And how would you define then guaranteed withdrawal rates? Yes. So the contract will have a schedule of guaranteed withdrawal rates that's not gender or yeah, not gender specific, but it is age specific. But it's usually not age by age. It's typically more in age bands. So just I'm completely making up numbers, but it could be say between the age if you decide to turn on the lifetime income between the ages of 60 and 64, maybe you'll get a 5% uh, payout rate. If you turn on the income between the ages of 65 and 69, maybe you'll get 5.5%. Between 70 and 74, maybe 5.5%. Something like that. It's just an age-based set of withdrawal rates where depending on the age you decide to turn on the guaranteed lifetime income, not annuitize the contract, but just turn on the living benefit, it's going to tell you what percentage of the benefit base you're allowed to receive. And that is based on the uh, the benefit base and that amount. And now this is where there's so many caveats because all these contracts work differently. What I was describing just now was really these withdrawal rates are based on the age you turn on the payments, not the age that you open the contract. But there could be cases where those withdrawal rates are based on the age you open the contract rather than the age you turn on the income. Wait, uh, again, for the uninitiated, if you wanted to turn off the income. Oh, yeah. Could you turn? Um, <laughs> you're not required to take out the guaranteed amount. You can leave it in there. That's where the, this would be the, the Moshe Malevsky critique of you're paying for insurance, and, but Just... you're not taking advantage of it. But yes, it's because of, you're not annuitizing the contract. You're not forced to receive that check in the mail. Uh, you could decide not to take out the full guaranteed amount. You, the, you the, could also take out more than the guaranteed amount, and then there would be some sort of provision about how that would reduce the subsequent guarantee. That was my next question. What happens if you take out more? Are you like, is it a <laughs> no more soup for you kind of uh, scenario? <laughs> or it's like, let's make a deal, if you will. Right. It's It's going to be some sort of let's make a deal that... Because it's liquid. You are allowed to take more than the guaranteed amount. It's just they'll recalculate what your subsequent guaranteed amount is, and it would be lowered through some sort of provision that varies quite a bit from contract to contract. So make sure you understand the the rules. Sorry about that. How does this look for couples? We've been talking about Mm -hmm. in the singular. How does this work in the plural? Mm -hmm. So it could be for a single life or for a joint life, and and typically it would be a, a couple that does that. The uh, there's two options. The most common, a lot of the the guaranteed withdrawal rate schedules simply just if it's joint life, they reduce the payout by a half a percent. So if it would have been five percent for the single person, it'd be four and a half percent for a couple. If it would have been six percent for the single person, it'd be five and a half percent for the couple. There are some companies that actually offer the same payout rate for a couple as for a single, but they charge a higher rider fee for the couple. And that's just because they have to buy more protections because with a couple, there's a greater chance that somebody lives longer. So yeah. is, is it fair mm-hmm. to say it's not that you're getting an advantage 
for doing it joint or single, it's going to be actuarially fairly priced. Is that is that right? Enough? Right. So, and, and that's a broader point to all all of these levers we're talking about. At the end of the day, they're all going to work together in some manner that's based on actuarial science. So there's no way to <laughs> really scam the insurance company because they have some really neat provision somewhere. That's going to be offset somewhere else, unless they're simply mispricing the contract. You see, that's a, that's a key. So that, that's why I said it because you're talking about they took it from the writer instead. That there is no arbitrage. You know, for the, I mean, the closest thing to the arbitrage is what you said in the last one. Sometimes in defined contribution plans, they can't have gender-based pricing, so women can kind of make out a little better. But absent of that, I, it doesn't really matter, right? It's just, it, it's just what flexibility do you like? Mm-hmm. Right, and, and what are you most comfortable with? And, and companies will market different things that. One company might market they have daily step-up opportunities. Now, actuarially speaking, that's not necessarily better than annual step-up opportunities because, again, they'll change some other lever somewhere else to to reduce the advantage on some other feature. But if that resonates with you, you might go that way. Another company might market that they have unlimited investment freedom, so you could be 100% stocks, but probably they're going to have a lower payout rate associated with that. So. You've got some flexibility to go with the story that resonates with you. It's just each company is trying to offer some different story as a way to market their particular approach to building the product. One other, we didn't really mention this at all, but another feature you might see is the the withdrawal rate could could lower when you deplete the contract value. So it may be the company could offer... 5% flat for life uh, is one option. Another option would be, no, you can actually take out 7% while money still remains in the contract. But if you do that, the contract will reset to offer you 3% after you deplete the contract value. So that could be another just example of a lever you have to play with. And that might and sound really dep- bad. Why would you want the income to deplete after the contract value runs out? But in terms of the sequence of returns risk, it's... It's always the partial annuity strategy that much higher payout rate early on helps to protect your other investments so that they're better prepared to provide the difference when that contract value depletes. You said something, and I want to ask a question, and I'm trying to see, and forgive me if I'm not getting it right. I'm just trying to constantly put myself in a in a consumer listening to this for the first time, and I'm thinking, how did I feel listening to this for, for, for the first time? And what you just said made me think, oh, the contract value is depleted and I get 3%. Is that what the annuitization is? Yeah, with that settlement phase where now the insurance company is on the hook to start paying you out of their pockets. Well, they, in this scenario I just created, you were allowed to take 7% of the benefit base each year, but when the contract value depletes, and, and this is not a surprise, you were told this, <laughs> but the, uh, the settlement phase is going to give you 3% of the benefit base. And that's an option you may have had. Another option may have been you're allowed to take 5% a year, but then in the settlement phase, you're allowed to continue taking 5%, or you're, you would receive 5% of the benefit base on that ongoing basis. And again, you may say to yourself, well, why wouldn't I do that? Well, because you're going to be paying for that. You're paying for that extra two percentage points in some other sort of lever, if you will. But mm-hmm. that may give you more security. Mm-hmm. Uh Impact of non-lifetime withdrawals. Yep, and, and that's so. 
you even before even when you're in the deferral phase and you want to take out a distribution you can clarify that you don't want to turn on your lifetime income you just want to take a distribution and that's what we talked about there's going to be every contract's different but they're going to do something to then lower the benefit base if you do that and conversely even when you're taking the lifetime distributions you could decide to take more than the lifetime distribution you can do so it's just they will recalculate the benefit base accordingly and and reduce it so that you would have less subsequent guaranteed income but that that's the same logic of a brokerage account you can spend as much as you want but if you spend more you're just going <laughs> to reduce the uh, chance of being able to spend in the future. It's the same idea. It's just made more explicit with the variable annuity. You can spend as much as you want, but if you're going to spend more than the the guarantee you're paying for, you're just going to get a reduced guarantee for the future. Wait, you can spend as much as you want as long as it's zero. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, no, no. And so, so okay, just uh, as, as we're winding here, we talked about the questions from a deferral period. That has to do with just the, the interplay between the roll-up rate, the step-up rate, the stacking, vesting, contract value, et cetera. Distribution, just, we, we just went through those questions. You know, income, you know, the income guaranteed amount, the withdrawal rates, et cetera. The risk management approach, we mentioned it, but just, I, I can knock these out, Wade, real quick in the interest of time, mm-hmm. and then you could take us home with the other one. But again, risk management, what you want to find out. Here is what's your maximum allocation to risky assets? What's the maximum allowed? Remember, this goes back to they're they, they're trying to actually they're trying to price risk accordingly, and in doing so, they can't control you if if they just give you carte blanche. So they want to sort of provide guardrails on on what you're allowed to do, simply because it allows them with their estimates. It's, it allows them with their pricing on estimates a little bit better, you know. And that's done with what's the allowed allocation on risky assets? What are the fund choices that you're allowed to have? Are there any requirements about using volatility controlled funds, holdings in cash? You know, we, we've mentioned this earlier. And then ultimately, what, what's the credit rating, you know, that the insurance company has earned simply for, from a stability standpoint? And so from a risk management question, those are the questions you kind of want to understand as you go into this as well. Uh, Wade, uh you want to go into the risk management approach as it regards, you know, with regards to fees? Yeah, yeah. So as a review of what we were talking about on the fee side, you want to understand the fees that you're paying, you're paying including variable annuity, sub-account, and sub-account fees. So you have the underlying expenses on the sub-accounts you choose. You have the mortality and expense charge for the annuity contract. You want to understand what those are. And generally, those would be applied to the contract value, but you want to just make sure that that is the case, that they're not applying would, them to the benefit base would you mind or some other just, metric. Because it's a new term for, again, for the uninitiated. More, and you said it, but just mortality and expense charges, those entail? That's a percentage fee. That That's the one where the insurance company is making its money. So the that's, investment... That's why uh, I'm asking charge, again. Yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the investment sub-account charges, those go... The, the variable annuity is picking fund managers to provide those funds. Those fees go to the fund manager. The mortality and expense charge is the percentage fee that's going to the insurance company to cover their costs of doing business and to cover the guarantees, the, the basic guarantees that are being provided as part of the contract. Not any living benefits, just basic return of 
of contract value, death benefit, and so forth. Yep. And then you've, if you have an optional rider for guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefits or an optional death benefit or some other type of optional living benefit, there's a fee for that. And that's going to be used to purchase the financial derivatives to support the, the, the guarantee. It's not, the insurance company is not making money off of their rider fees. So, so you're essentially saying the sub-account fees and these rider fees to purchase whatever leaps or whatever in the open market, those are pass-throughs for the most part. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we didn't mention this before specifically either, but you know, you can see if you look at a variable annuity company, they may have multiple options available. And so what you'll see is the more robust the guarantee, the higher the rider fee. And so you don't necessarily just want the lowest rider fee. It's maybe the rider fee is 0.8%, but then at the guarantee rate is 4.5%. But if you're willing to pay, I'm just making up numbers right now. If you're willing to pay at a 1.2% fee, maybe you get a 5% payout rate guaranteed. Maybe if you're willing to pay a 1.6% fee, you get a 5.5% uh, guaranteed withdrawal rate. So it's not just a matter of finding the lowest fee on the on the rider, because again, it's this is an actuarial game. The, uh, the the more robust the guarantee, the higher the rider, the higher the rider charge. And you just I mean, want the, to understand what that is, how it works, what it's the, applied the, to. It may be applied to the benefit base, or maybe applied to the contract value. Or I mean, the, the question you have to ask yourself here, to me, when you when you're talking about these uh, rider fees, and and that is, if you were to if you had the money yourself and you wanted to go in the open market and buy leaps and and and, and the the contracts to do so. Could you get a better rate than the insurance company? And that's not even considering the the pooling, the mortality pooling <laughs> benefit and all that. Not, that's not even considering that, you know, and, and right. most likely the answer is going to be no, you know, frankly, simply because of how they work on the, on the institutional side. <laughs> yeah. And that point is a little bit of a teaser for our, when we later talk about fixed index annuities, where someone will say, oh, you could just create your own fixed index annuity and... Yes, maybe, if, but you don't get that institutional pricing and so forth. But to try to recreate your own guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit, that's a whole other world of complication that you need an entire team of actuaries to have figured out. It, a, a household is not going to be able to replicate. And that's not even with the uh, the risk pooling feature as well. That, even Even if we read your book? Yeah, even if you read my book, you're not going to be ready to go price your own GLWBs, unfortunately. Maybe if you read some of Moshe Molesky's books, he has the, the Calculus of Retirement Income. That is really a book about calculus, and that's what you need for pricing some of this. My book doesn't have any calculus. Okay. Uh, then fee adjustments. Does, does the insurance company have any capacity to change the fees? And that's generally the answer is yes. <laughs> so right now the rider fee may be 1%, but when you read the fine print, the insurance company reserves the right to increase it to up to one and a half percent. Now they generally aren't doing that to trick you, but if financial derivatives become more expensive, they may have to pay more to support the guarantee in the future. And they, they reserve the right to increase the fee accordingly. And then also surrender charges. You want to make sure you understand what that surrender charge schedule looks like and how that works in the event that you did need to take a distribution early on and that distribution exceeds the amount you're allowed to take out before the surrender charge is applied. So that, at the end of the day, that's variable annuities. I think we 
we had a pretty good discussion. Every company is offering different features and so forth. So what we talked about isn't universal, but I hope it's sufficient to really help the listeners understand how these work and gives them the ability to start looking at the features of any particular contract. And they may have to change the terms. They may not see the term benefit base. It may be called income base. They may not see contract value. It might be called account value. But once you make that basic translation, that you actually understand what you're reading about. That, that's my hope with these episodes. No, I, uh, 100%. And I think I've, I mean, I think folks, especially in podcasts, maybe shy away from providing the level of detail we did today simply because it's like, oh, it, it's going to be boring or, or whatnot. And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. Sometimes you're dealing with a lot of money. You know, you spent 30, 40 years building up this base. You need to know. You just, there's no way around it, right? You just need to sit down and and listen in. I, I, I think you, yeah. we've been mm-hmm. accomplishing that, at, you know, so far. So uh, I, I think it's a great way. Yeah, yeah. If you're thinking to put $200,000 into a contract, you want to make sure you understand how that contract works. And it's not, (laughs) it can be complicated, but it's not insurmountable. It is possible to understand how these contracts work. It's it's not impossible to understand. And, And hopefully... There you go. The listeners have I, a I think that's that. the slogan for retire with style. It's not impossible it's to, not understand. Impossible to understand. <laughs> you missed your calling, man. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, and with and with that, I think that's a wrap, right, Wade? Yeah, let's call a wrap on the the variable annuity conversation. All right. And what's to follow? Well, it's either going to be fixed index annuities or it's going to be something completely different. We still need to figure that out. Right? All right. Well, we'll see how we point, feel. <laughs> dun, at some dun, point dun. in the future, we're going to continue with <laughs> other types of annuities as well. Just don't know if it'll be next week or not quite yet. All right. All right, everyone. Thank you for this installment of Retire with Style. Thank you for spending the afternoon, evening, or morning with us. We really appreciate it. More to follow. Bye now. Take care, Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.